1: exclusions apply see site for details
2: hey folks this is kevin on this week's episode of risk you'll hear Susanna lee
0: just because i'm a sex worker doesn't mean that i'm knowledgeable and a personal fan of all things sexual you know we all still have preferences we don't all wear glasses and have podcasts
2: <laughs> now here's the show Kids, this is Risk, the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share. I'm Kevin Allison. This is Orlando Julius behind me now. We are calling this week's episode Coping, three stories told in three different cities and fabulous ones at that. Now, don't forget, I I want you to pause a moment here and think, do you... Do you, dear Risk listener, know anyone who has a really good scary story? A ghost story, a story about running away from a knife-wielding maniac, a psychological thriller sort of mystery story, anything that, you know, kind of feels a little bit like it's in the horror movie vein? We are looking for scary stories for our Halloween episode this year. And so think, does your mom have a good story along those lines? Does your, you know, junior year of high school English teacher? <laughs> it really, we, we, we really do have to like make people. Now, hold on. Stop and think. Who do you want to introduce us to? We can give them all they need to know as to how to tell that story. They can reach out to me personally at Kevin at risk-show.com or they can just go to the submissions page at risk-show.com slash submissions and watch the video there that tells how to pitch us and all. Yeah, get those scary story pitches to us from anyone in your life that you can think of who... You're like, oh my god, yeah, my ex-girlfriend has an incredible thing that happened to her once. That sort of thing. We are at risk-show.com slash submissions. Now, in a little bit, we're going to hear a story from Avery Williams. We've been wanting to get this story on the show for the longest time, so it's it's awesome that we finally are. But before that, another story we've been trying to get on the show for the longest time. We're going to hear now from Susanna Lee, who you can find at susannalee.com. This is a story that she shared at the Risk Live show in Los Angeles. Susanna Lee here with a story we call The Battles.
0: Thank you guys. So it's, uh, it's June 2014 in the Valley, which means it's two things. Gemini season and hot as fuck. <laughs> On a Tuesday night, I'm at my job as a private dancer, which is uh, not actually the job I moved out here for. But um, it was uh, better than anything else I could get without a bachelor's degree. See, I came out here to LA from Kansas City in hopes of taking my stand-up career further than what it seemed possible for good old foul-mouthed tattooed me uh, back in the Bible belt, Uh, but I couldn't find a pants-on day job that would still allow me the freedom and flexibility to travel for shows and throughout my comedy career. I'd always kind of turn to sex work uh, casually, just on and off, usually a little Craigslist stuff, just to make ends meet because touching dicks is easy for me and it leaves uh, my energy free for (laughs) (coughs) stand-up. Know yourself, you know? So here we are, it's like midnight, I'm about an hour away from being done with a double shift that's brought in literally zero paying customers since 10 a.m. It's my second double in a row, and yesterday was slow too, but it was like two hand jobs and a foot fucker slow, not like zero dick through the door slow like today. (laughs) Now, it's been uh, very slow a lot lately because the owner decided to stop advertising to save money, and the sex just isn't selling itself because no one knows it's there. I mean, except for the guys that have been coming in for years or maybe the ones that, like, happen to read the sign as they drive past. Uh, He also won't fix the air conditioning. So this one story cement building is holding heat like an oven. The bright spot of the day though, is that I got to work with Alita who I love because she always brings wine to share and she'll tell me these like wild stories from her military days. Uh, Now she's uh, just opened our third bottle, but I'm still nursing my second cup because drinking red wine in the heat fucking sucks. And also, to be honest, I was still hungover from the night before. So I was coming to the terms with uh, the probability of having a zero-dollar day when the signal light in the dressing room came on, meaning there's a potential customer in the lobby. So I fluff up, and I go out to greet him. And there's a dude out there waiting, and he looks just like all the rest of them, you know, just a polo shirt and khakis, boring as fuck, and just dripping with shame. My favorite. So I put on my flirty face and I say, Hi there, you want to come back and have some fun? And he drops his eyes really nervously and he's like, "Um, Yeah, but uh, <clears throat> I want to try something kind of <clears throat> weird. <Aww. laughs> he thinks he wants to try something weird. <laughs> Here's the thing, everybody thinks they're into something weird and the truth of it is none of it shocks me anymore, you know? Like I had a guy look inside me with a flashlight for 20 minutes once, just, just looking around like he lost something, you know? I made a nail appointment while giving a golden shower. <laughs> My point is just like my eyebrows just don't raise incredulously anymore, you know? So you say you want to try something weird, you need to know your fucking audience. But I know how to play this game. I have to play along. So I I lean and I go, "Ooh, what do you want to try?" And he goes, "Um <clears throat> a strap-on." And I'm like, "Pardon? <clears throat> a strap-on?" And I'm like, okay, well, you buy it, we'll try it. And I direct him to the porn store that's in the front of the place. Now, the thing is, usually when you tell somebody that they have to buy an accessory for their kink, they leave. And it's not out of anger, it's just out of cheapness. You know, nobody wants to invest in a curiosity. Like, you drop a hundred bucks on a strap-on, find out you don't like it, that's just money down the drain. So that's what I've come to expect. So when I direct him out there, I went back to the dressing room, and get comfortable again. And then I was real shocked when the signal light comes back on. Oh shit, this guy's calling my bluff. See, here's the thing, I'd never done that before. I'm not a fan of anal play, uh, especially with man-ass. And I know that sounds weird, all right? I know, but just because I'm a sex worker doesn't mean that I'm knowledgeable and a personal fan of all things sexual, you know? We all still have preferences. We don't all wear glasses and have podcasts. Some of us just give a good hand job and don't like waiting tables, you know? And I don't judge anyone for liking it. I mean, like, please, please like it. You can have my share. It's just not for me. But like I said, it's been slow, and I can't pass up the chance at any money, so here we go. I go back out there. He's standing there, and he's holding this brown paper bag, and he shoves it at me like he can't get it out of his hands fast enough. And I I take him back to my room, and I I say, I'm going to give you a couple minutes to get comfortable, and I leave the bag there. And then I go back into the dressing room, and I freak the fuck out. (laughs) I'm like, Alita, Alita, fuck, shit. I gotta fuck a man's ass. I don't know how to fuck a man's ass. You gotta tell me how do I fuck a man's ass. You got like 90 seconds, because he's waiting, come on. And she looks at me, and she's like, she's doing her best to focus. And uh, she takes this like slow sip of her wine real slow sets the cup down deep breath in and then she raises her hand with like a finger up like she is preparing to dispense some sort of like sage guru on a mountain fucking wisdom and she says you just do it (laughs) that's it that's all she said Are you fucking kidding me? I want to do better than the blind leading the blind in this, and you're giving me fucking Nike slogans? (laughs) But that's all she had. That's all she was giving me. So, like, I'm going to take it. I'm going to steal myself. Here we go. I go back in my room. He's opened the package. He's bought a dildo, not a strap-on, just a dildo. And so I take it, and I go, okay, uh, I know you want this. Is there anything else you want? And he says, yeah, I'd also like spanking and humiliation. Perfect. See, I'm a quick thinker. So I put these three things together in my head and I come up with a plan where I'm gonna have him suck on the dildo while I spank his ass and tell him what a little bitch he is for loving it. All right, in my mind, he's gonna be so overcome by the whole sensory overload of the experience, he's not even gonna notice when I don't fuck his ass. <laughs> yeah. All right, that's the plan I come up with and that's a plan I put into effect and that's the plan that worked beautifully for like uh, three minutes. And he's doing it, and I'm doing it, and we're doing it. And all of a sudden, he looks up at me with those big puppy dog eyes. And he says, are you going to use it on me? <clears throat> Do you want me to? Yeah. yeah. OK. So now I have, him, uh, I have him down on the ground in um, sort of a, a child's pose, for those of you yogis in the room. Namaste. <laughs> so I, I kneel down, and I grab the dildo. And I, I don't, I don't want to look where what I'm doing. I don't, I don't want to, you know, be... I'm looking off into the distance, which in this small red light room isn't far. I'm basically just, like, looking at the corner. And I'm fumbling around back there. And the dildo is like this kind of a sticky rubber dildo and his, his man ass is, is very natural, very hairy, and so it's not working out well. Like everything is just like tangly and fucking uncomfortable, and I can't get it to work, and I'm getting really frustrated. <clears throat> then I remembered, anal play, you need lube. So I grabbed this bottle of lube, and from like six, maybe eight inches above, I just like squeeze half of it <laughs> down his ass crack. It was like a dry riverbed receiving the rain. And then I pour a bunch on the dildo, too. And then I wrap a towel around the base just for traction. And, uh, and I go back to the salt mines. <laughs> and things are much smoother now. They're much slipperier. They're, everything's working out just fine. And I find the target. <clears throat> and I just sort of push gently. Like I'm softly like knocking on a door. Just tap, tap, tap. Tap, 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 tap. And then the head pops in. And so I take that as my green light to do what Alita said. And I just fucking did it. Oh, all the way in. I put shoulder into it. This man made a noise that was closer to the word whimper than anything else I've ever heard in my life. And when I pulled it out, there was like dark matter on it and in the red light at first I couldn't tell what it was and I thought it was blood and I thought I fucking broke him and then then the smell hit me and the heat and the humidity and my hangover and I stand up real quick and I'm like reeling and, I, and I'm just I'm just like I'm just I'm just trying not to puke and I'm trying to figure out what to do and if this guy would have looked up at his like paid professional he would have seen me doing an impression of Macaulay Culkin in Home Alone you know just eyes wide hands on face oh no and I'm looking around I'm looking for something to fix the situation but I don't know what that's gonna be because there's nothing in here there's no like time machine you know (laughs) DeLorean with a flux capacitor there's none of that shit, there's no way to go back in time and like not drop out of college and pursue a career in the arts (laughs) so again quick thinking comes to the rescue I look down and I go oh now, now you do it yourself yeah you do it yourself reach back there and fuck your own man pussy you little bitch boy and that's what he did he reaches back there and he like like fumbles around with it and after like about a minute of that he sits up on his shins and then he just sits down on it hard and it took him right over the edge like the second he did it bullet leaves the gun and I'm like one foot out of my room I'm like okay I'm gonna give you a minute to get cleaned up I'll be back in just a minute and I go out in the hallway and I just like pace around and I'm just trying to like even back out and I'm trying to sort of unsee and unsmell and just undo everything and after a few minutes I'm back in the room and he's dressed and he's composed and the dildos in the trash can like sort of half covered with some Kleenex and uh, I start to walk him down the hall towards the exit to the back door no pun intended that's (laughs) This is where we set the customers free. Uh, And he starts talking. As we're walking, he starts talking. He's talking about my job, but in a good way. You know, he says, I'm so grateful that you were here. And I'm so grateful that there's people that do what you do. You know, I've wanted to try that for a long time, but I didn't know where to go. And then I found you guys on the Internet. And then he starts in with listing all of the benefits of sex work, all the therapeutic, you know, like the psychological and the physical and the physiological and the social, everything, you know? He's just parroting everything, everything that I've told myself about why it's okay that I'm paying my bills more through hand jobs than jokes, he's just throwing in my face. And I can't listen to it from him. You know, I can't take it from him. First of all, Like, you can Google where to go to get your ass fucked, but you can't Google how to prepare it for such an intrusive event. (laughs) And secondly, maybe you're real aware and progressive, you know? Like, maybe you're the fucking fully enlightened Buddha himself, but I can't pat him on the back for it. Because he gets to go back to a nice house and a salaried job and a family that'll take care of him when he's old and demented. And I've been here hot and tired for 14 hours. And now I get to go back to my room and clean his shit out of the carpet. So I'm sorry to sound cold, but I am fresh out of pats on the back. We get to the door and he turns to me and we stare at each other for a minute and then he says, well... I guess I can check that off my bucket list. And I say, yeah, buddy, me too. (laughs) Hold my hand up for a high five. I walk back to the dressing room and Alita's packing her stuff up. She's hit her wall. She's done. She's going to leave early. So after a few minutes, I walk her back to the exit too. And when I open the door, his minivan is still there with him inside. Hands, you know, around his face. He's crying over the steering wheel. And I just stood there watching him. And I watched him. I watched him as Alita got in her car. I watched him as she drove away. And I'm just watching him. I'm just staring at him. And I feel this like, little bit of compassion trying to break through my annoyance and exhaustion. Because he came in intending to get rid of a curiosity. And he's leaving now with a new burden. And I know how that feels. So I get back to the dressing room. I sit down. And I remember this quote that I heard once about how we should be kind to everyone we meet because everyone's fighting a battle you know nothing about. And how I felt the truth of that statement right then was staggering. I mean, everybody's fighting a battle because everything is a battle. You know, maybe against desires we don't want to have because of how they're going to fuck up our calm, safe life. Or, or maybe, you know, a battle for the faith and energy to keep on pushing the boulder of an artistic career back up the hill it's rolled down time and time again. I mean, there's literally like a million battles you could be fighting. But sitting around pondering them is not going to get me out of there into a 1 a.m. open mic down the street. So I shook it off, grabbed the disinfectant spray and a couple towels and headed back into my room to keep fighting another of my own. Thank you.
3: What's the worst that could have fun when you're taking the risk? Your whole life you've been searching, but you're too afraid of all of it. End up caught up in a routine, no idea how you get here. Trying to keep my head up, of what is, is easy to say.
4: It's 2009. Uh, We had a different president. Um, I'm sitting on a red chair, red leather couch. Um, You could tell it used to be comfortable, uh, but it's way past its prime. It's got bruises. It's been beat up. And I've got some notes on my lap. I've got my book bag on my back. And I've got my suitcase at my feet. And I'm sitting in an airport in the middle of Pennsylvania. And I'm on my way to an interview. I'm a second year engineering student at Penn State. I've been trying to get an internship for a long time, mostly because I need some money. I'm broke. And this is a big step. This interview is going to be big for me. And I'm also excited because I'm an introvert. And plane rides are pretty awesome for me because your phone doesn't work. No one's going to call you. You don't have to worry about being early or late. You're just, whenever the plane gets me there, that's when I get there. So it's, it's a good time for me to recharge. And so I get on the plane. Everything goes great. I'm getting off. I'm feeling good my first job is to try to find these other students who are interviewing with me. And so I find them. Great group. It's about six kids. First thing I notice, only black guy there, right? Only black person there. It's cool. Penn State's not very diverse. It's not a surprise. Engineering is even less diverse if you're not familiar. Um, So you kind of get used to being the only person in the room, right? You kind of get used to... Oh, make your own groups pair up and do this and kind of you're just kind of there in the middle like nobody wants to be on my team sad story Um, you kind of get used to like the off-handed comments which you're like was that racist or was that just like like, I don't really know why we get Martin Luther King day off it's not really that big of a deal you're just kind of like so anyway you get used to that stuff you learn to deal with it in your own way but otherwise like I said we meet this group they're a great group of kids we meet up with the representative of the company, and we load up into this 15-passenger van, and we're about to drive from Memphis about two hours into the middle of Arkansas, and that's where the place is that we're going to interview. So we get in the sun setting, so the first thing I notice is I'm sitting in the back, and I'm kind of looking out the window, and I can tell that it's flat, but I can't see anything. And so it's kind of this, this dark void that is just beyond the window. It's interesting to me because I'm like, I've never been to Arkansas, and I'm, I may not ever come back, honestly. But I can't, I can't see anything, right? I don't, I don't know what's out there. So we drive to two hours, we get there, and being college students, everybody kind of hops out the van. They're like, oh, it's only 10. We can't go to sleep now. We gotta like do college stuff, whatever that is. And so they're like, we'll just kind of hit the bar, and then we'll park by the pool. It was a nice pool. They'd kind of really Spare no expense for all of us to come out there. And it was kind of strange that this hotel was this nice in the middle of, like, nowhere. Like, why is this even here? But, again, introvert. I'm kind of like, dude, I need to, like, read a book or just kind of sit and meditate or do whatever. And one thing as an introvert, you get used to, you kind of, like, come with prepackaged excuses. You're kind of, like, ready for, like, if I'm here and I need to get here, I'm going to do this. And so I think the first thing I said is, yeah, I don't have, I don't have swim trunks, guys. can't, like, yeah, you know. So <laughs> I... I know that if I can just get to my room, you know, you can come up with any number of excuses why you didn't come back. But you have to escape the immediate peer pressure. And so I kind of slide off, hit the elevator, I get to the room. It's nice. It's great. But my balcony is really close to the pool. And so I can kind of hear the sound of like college banter fun. They're like, oh, oh, oh splash. Oh, beer. Like, I'm like, OK, it actually does. Kind of sound like they're having a good time. And I don't know what happened to me, but I decide, all right, I'm going to go down, right? Thing is, I don't actually have swim trunks. So that was a real problem I had to solve. Um, But I'm a huge Batman fan. I had this pair of lucky Batman boxers that I was kind of like, ah, like in a pinch, this could work. Um, But I did say boxers, not trunks, right? So these didn't have a button. So there was a risk inherent, right, in even just going down there. But I go down. Everything's great. We, we were down there for hours, long after the pool had closed, um, and we actually had a great time. We actually bonded. It was great. Um, eventually, we call it. We go upstairs. We all kind of get rest, and we meet early in the morning. We get in our same white van. We drive about 20 minutes now to this plant, and again, we're driving, middle of nowhere. It's like, it's almost like, where is the destination? Like, where are you driving us to? And kind of out of nowhere, kind of like erupts from the ground this little building, kind of in the distance, and as we get bigger, as we get closer, it gets bigger, and eventually, it's this massive, huge, 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 huge plant. And we go through the security gate. And they gave us all this PPE, all this uh, safety equipment: hard hat, hard-toed shoes, ear protection, eye protection, all the all the protections, right? And we get out of the van, and the first thing I notice is there's like this roar, like this like rumble, kind of like if you ever stood next to a train as it passes, that just feeling of like the whole ground is shaking. And we're like, why? There's no trains, right? We can see everywhere. There's no train. We go in and I can see why the floor is rumbling because there's all this massive equipment moving through. They have these huge overhead cranes which are carrying hundreds and hundreds of tons of steel. And if you can imagine what a steel mill looks like, that's what this is. This is an actual steel mill. We make steel here. And so the air has this, like, it's heavy with whatever. I don't know what's in it. It's hot. It's heavy. It's thick. And it has this totally different texture than any place I've ever been. They've got these huge, like I said, these huge things moving throughout. They've got this thing that they call an electric arc furnace, which you should Google because it's super crazy. It's like a tea kettle, right? That's the size of a house. And they're dumping scrap steel into it and conducting it and doing all this cool stuff in the background that makes it melt. It's kind of crazy. Now, all this cool stuff is happening. I know I'm not going to work here. Um, I'm an aerospace engineer. My job is making things fly really fast, really far. I don't really need to be here, but it's nice to be wanted, right? It's nice to be invited. And so we go through and we do the interviews and all that kind of stuff is great. We do the pleasantries. And then we head back to the hotel so we can pack and we're going to head out early in the morning. Now, we get back in our van. We've got the same two-hour ride. Now, the difference is that the sun is up. We can see all the stuff that we couldn't see on the way in. As we're going through, it's literally, guys, it's nothing but corn and cotton, it's ooh, I just spoiled it. It's corn and wheat. Pretend like you didn't know that part. So we're driving, we're driving, we're driving. Everybody's kind of just talking, 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 talking. And we kind of see this new crop that you guys don't know what it is. And it's got a gray stem. And at the top, it has like a pillow kind of top. And I'm from Philly, right? I, I, we, I don't know what crops are. And I just remember thinking to myself, this must be where they make all the food in the world. Like, because this is, cause I mean, as far as you can see, there's nothing behind the corn, right? It's just more corn back there. And I'm kind of wondering, what is this gray thing that looks like a dandelion? It's kind of strange. And eventually somebody in the van speaks what I'm thinking, which is, what is this? Like, what is that? It kind of looks like, and somebody goes, is that cotton? So now I'm like, oh, that's kind of weird. It kind of knocks me off balance. Because cotton, for me, has like a different connotation. And, and I know we still use cotton right i know it still exists but i've never seen a cotton field before i'm kind of like again i'm in my head i'm like oh this is kind of weird i'm glad i got a three-hour plane ride to kind of like internalize this and figure out how i feel but then the next thing somebody says is can we pick some so now now i'm like oh no like I, so I, I withdraw, right? I, I withdraw. It's kind of like in the movies where, like, the main character, they just kind of, like, zoom out, and they're just by themselves. So now I'm miles away from anybody else, and I'm just like, holy shit, like, that, that just happened. Somebody said that. And before I know it, you know, I feel the rumble strips so, of, hmm, hmm. And then we're, we're off to the side of the road. The doors fly open. Everybody goes flying out the door. And I'm just like, dude, no. Like, I'm going to. I'm gonna. So this is an introvert's worst nightmare is when you have to react to something that you haven't had a chance to internalize. So you're just kind of like, oh, shit. And then on top of that, you're the only black person. So now you're the spokesman for all black people. <laughs> right? So I'm kind of sitting in the back of the van like, dude, maybe if I just, like, stay still, no one will see me. They'll get back in. It'll be great. And they'll hop out. And they kind of go, oh, are you going to get out? And I'm like, ah, uh, like, uh. So I don't know what happened. I kind of blacked out. I kind of, and now I'm outside. And now the thing I remember here is the, the rushing of the interstate behind me. So there's cars going back. And then in front of me is this scene of six white college kids frolicking through a cotton field and I'm hearing them say things like oh my god it's really sharp it's like it's sharp it's not it's it's painful oh can you get it it's stuck on my shirt and I'm just like yo this is like a real thing that is happening and the most vivid part of this is my friend not her real name Mary to this day she's one of the the one of the most thoughtful nice, sweet people that I've ever met in my life, and she has this beaming smile that's brighter than almost anybody that I've ever met, except my wife, and she comes up to me with, with the smile and goes, do you want to pick any? And so I'm like, so I have this moment kind of like in Lion King where Mufasa's in the clouds, and, he's, and so all my ancestors are like, Dude, "I, you better, and I'm like, guys, 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 I got it, I got it. I'm like, are you f- fucking kidding me? Are you serious? Like, are you, are you actually serious right now? Are we having this conversation, right? Do you understand that my ancestors were literally kidnapped, brought on a boat, the ones that survived, right? And had to pick this from sunup to sundown, not of their choosing. After they got out of that, they had to deal with Jim Crow for a couple of years and then they had to deal with the civil rights movement, all this so they could get an education and make some money so that I could get an education and never have to pick cotton in a field <laughs> ever again right and so here you are in 2009 right different president 2009 you're asking me if I want to pick any cotton now here's the thing here's the thing I didn't actually say any of this right? this is just this is just in my head I'm like okay I think what actually came out was like, I like mm, I'm good like I'm good I think I'm actually good she turned around she went frolicking back into the field It was great. I'm standing there. She's like, can you take a picture of us? And so I take a picture of them, which to this day, the most ironic picture I've ever taken, which is like six white people holding cotton. And the piece of it that's the best is that the camera person was black and is not picking the cotton. Awesome. Right. But we all get back in the van. The rest of the trip is uneventful. When we get to the airport, I'm glad that none of our seats are together, so I can do the thing where I internalize. And when we got to Penn State, we all got off and we're catching. I don't even know if we had Uber at that time. We think we talked taxis. And she gave me a piece, like a bowl of cotton. And I was like, oh, snap. First of all, it is really sharp. Didn't know that. And then we go back to our rooms. Everything's normal. Go back to school. To be honest, I really struggled with that situation for a long time because the other thing is that you, you sometimes get that feeling of, like, am I black enough? And I, would, I told some of my friends, like, guys, this happened. And they went, well, what'd you do? What, what did you say? And I'm like, I don't know. I kind of just was like, oh, I'm good. And they're like, are you what? I'm like, are you fucking kidding me? Are you going to really ask me to? And I was just like, dang, like, did I, did I react right? Like, was that, did I mess up? Should I have, like, taught the lesson in that moment? And. Eventually, I kind of came to a point that, you know, the cotton kind of taught the lesson for me, right? The cotton showed you how difficult it is, how sharp it can be, how uncomfortable it can be for a few minutes in the fall when it's cool of your own choosing, you, you decided to do this and it was not fun. So imagine what it would be like to do this under a whip, right? And I kind of struggled and I thought maybe that lesson would have been lost if I had flown off the handle. Like maybe, maybe that lesson wouldn't have been taught. I can't honestly take credit. For keeping a calm head because it, it was a reaction i didn't i didn 't consciously say, "You know what? try to like be no I, it just literally that 's what came out I think that 's how I managed the moment, but now I try to carry that with me so now now we do live in a different time where I think people are being offensive and being intentional, and I think you have the right to be offended by that right no No one would fault you if you were mad that somebody said something ridiculous to you, but I think what I try to carry with me now is what is it more powerful to build a bridge instead of burn one right do we do we sometimes make more space to have these lessons if you can give somebody extend them the generosity to benefit of doubt in the moment um so i try to carry that with me and i hope you guys will too thank you
2: This is Risk. This is Agoria behind me now. And we just heard from Avery Williams. You can find Avery on Instagram at rejected underscore stone. Now, before that, we heard a little interstitial, a song that was written for us and performed for us by an artist called Josem. You can find him at IamJosem.com. That's j-o-z-e-m you know if you remember Risk in our first year or two independent musicians would write little songs about a minute long that included the word Risk in them and we would feature them here or there we still welcome that it's just been years since anyone's actually sent one in so you know where to reach me I'm at Kevin kevinatrisk-show.com our final story on this week's episode is a very special one a young gal A uh, fan of the show reached out to us, pitched us a story. We were so moved by it that we invited her to come to New York City to tell it. And she just did such a fabulous job for someone who had never done anything like this before. So here is Rosie May with a story we call The Check.
1: It is six o'clock in the morning. I've been awake for about 30 minutes and I'm rolling out my yoga mat underneath the one window in my 450 square foot studio apartment. I'm 21 and I recently moved out of my parents' house and I'm living on my own by myself and I feel like an adult for the first time ever because I'm the youngest of four kids and I've always been the baby And the one that everybody always had to protect and take care of. And I'm excited to prove that I can be an adult who can take care of myself. And part of that is this new routine that I've adopted of doing yoga every morning. So I'm rolling out my mat and my phone rings. I see that it's my brother. And my brother lives at home with my mom and dad. And he works in a bar. And... Normally gets out of work at 5 a.m. So it's completely normal for him to still be up at 6. And I figure he probably is playing video games and sat on his phone and butt dialed me. And I almost don't answer, but I decide to at the last minute, and I say, Hello? And he says, May! May! You gotta get to the house right now. It's a family emergency. And I say, What's going on? And he says, It's dad. And then he hangs up. And I only live like two miles from my parents' house, but I don't have my driver's license, so I need somebody to come and pick me up. And I call my brother back, and he doesn't answer. And then I call my other brother, and he doesn't answer. And I call my sister, and my mom, and my dad, and nobody's answering. And I look at the phone, and I see that it's 6.15, and I'm like, okay, they're probably still sleeping, and I'll just wait for somebody to call me. 20 minutes go by, I haven't heard anything. So I call everybody again, no answer. 30 minutes go by, 45 minutes, and I still have no idea what's going on. And I'm like, what the fuck? You can't just call me and drop a bomb like that and then leave me hanging. And I feel like I did all those times when I was a kid when my family wasn't telling me something because they thought that they were protecting me. And I'm starting to get really pissed off. And I'm like, guys, like, you can't do this to me. And so I call everyone one more time, and I finally get in touch with my sister. And I say, Claire, do you know what the fuck is going on? Like, what is happening? What did Dad do? And she says, May, dad's dead. And I don't believe her because my dad is 56 and he's healthy and he's strong and he probably eats too much candy and he could run more, but like he's fine. And I want to start arguing with her. And I'm like, do you know who dad is? You realize that dad has... Survived motorcycle accidents where the bike was totaled and crunched up and he walked away without a scratch and he's Mended his own broken bones with ace bandages and Tylenol like what the fuck are you talking about? This man can't be dead and I want to start arguing with her, but I can't because My lips are going numb and my ears are ringing and I'm losing my peripheral vision and I have to look at the floor Because I'm positive that all the blood in my body is just draining out of me through the bottom of my feet And that's why I'm about to faint right now, not because of what my sister just told me I know that she's still talking, but I can't understand what she's saying And I know that I'm responding to her, but I don't know what I'm saying And I blink, and then I'm getting dressed And then I blink, and I open my eyes, and I'm in my sister's car And then I blink, and I open my eyes again, and we're outside of my house And it's like 7.30 on a Friday morning. And like kids are running to the bus stop. And people are getting in their cars to go to work. And there's the house that I grew up in. And there's caution tape holding the front door open. And there's an ambulance parked in my driveway. And there's police cars. And this doesn't make any sense to me. And my sister and I walk in and there's nobody there. No one in my family comes to say hello. We don't see any police officers or any paramedics. There's just an empty hallway and the French doors to the living room wide open. And my father's body just laying on the hardwood floor. And he's not covered in any sort of sheet or anything. He's just in his old sweatpants that he always wears and... There's like a white cloth covering his face and I'm looking at him and I don't understand what's going on and I'm trying to comprehend and my sister nudges me and she says is it fucked up that I want to see his face and I say no because I want to see his face too and she takes the cloth off and I want to start arguing with her again because he doesn't look dead he doesn't look like any dead person I've ever seen in movies or on TV He doesn't look like my grandparents or my friend's mom when they died in the hospital. He doesn't look like anyone I've ever seen laying in a casket at a wake before. He looks like he's sleeping. He looks like he's dreaming. Like he's even got this smile on his face that you get like when you walk out of a massage and you're just like, (sighs) like that dopey, like he looks like that. And I'm arguing with myself and I'm trying to understand what's going on because I don't want to admit to myself that I know how my dad died. And I don't want to go there because my dad is incredibly deceiving. And when you look at him, you see a guy who gets up and goes to work and works hard for 12 hours a day, and then he comes home and he hangs out with his family. And he goes to church every Sunday, and we can't go anywhere in town without somebody recognizing him and knowing him and coming and talking to him for 15 minutes. And he's like the perfect dad, and he's mastered the art of cooking on the grill and skimming the pool and playing with the kids all at the same time. And he's the guy who's going to live to be 107 and have all the stories to tell all the kids at every family reunion. And nothing makes sense to me right now. But I'm looking at that smile on my dad's face and I'm remembering that to the outside eye, you don't look at my dad and see that he's got a taste for cocaine, but that he smokes crack because it's cheaper. You don't look at my dad and see a guy who grew up in a time when it was socially acceptable and even kind of expected to beat the shit out of your kids. And because my dad is a rebel by nature, he got the shit beat out of him a lot. And when he was 16, he learned that the best way to deal with pain is to just numb it. And that's what he's been doing. And I don't want to admit to myself that that smile isn't because he's dreaming, but it's because he was high when he died and it's because he died of an overdose. And that's the part of my dad that I was okay being protected from. And I was okay leaving that part of him in the dark, but I can't because that part of him is the part of him that killed him. And I just wanna start screaming and crying and having a temper tantrum because this wasn't supposed to fucking happen. But I can't do that because a paramedic walks in and he takes me and my sister into the kitchen and there's my mom and my brothers and my mom is sitting at the kitchen table and she's crying but she's pissed and she's like how the fuck could he do this that stupid motherfucker how the fuck could he do this to our family how could he do this to me how could he do this to his children flashback six months it's April and I haven't moved out yet I'm still living at home, and my dad comes home from work one day and announces that there's been a lawsuit filed against his company. And all of the employees that haven't gotten paid overtime or certain competitions for, like, five years are going to get one big back check, And it's going to be a huge amount of money. And my dad's department is set to receive their checks in August. So from April, May, June, July, August, everything is waiting on this check All of the projects in the house that aren't finished yet are waiting for the check to get finished. And my dad crashed my mom's car going to meet his dealer. But mom's going to get a new car when we get the check. And all of our debt's going to be paid off when we get the check. And dad's going to go to rehab. And this check, we're not even going to gain anything from it. It's just going to get us even and get us off of rock bottom. And everybody is just so happy to not be suffering anymore. And that's all that we can look forward to. So... August comes and goes. I've moved out. I'm on my own, making my own adult life. I call my mom one day, and I ask if she wants to go to BJ's with me, and she says yes, and we go. When we're sitting in the parking lot about to walk inside, my dad calls us, and he got the check, and it's September 10th. I'll never forget it because it was the best day, and we're celebrating, and we're like, our salvation has come, and We don't have to suffer anymore, and it's this big, like, party over the phone, and my dad deposits a couple thousand dollars in my mom's bank account, and she and I go into BJ's, and we stock up on Tupperware and bulk items, and she drops me back off at my apartment, and I'm so happy, and I'm like, this is it. Like, all of the trauma that my family's gone through because of my dad's addictions, it's over because he can afford to go to rehab now, and this isn't going to be a problem anymore and the house is going to get fixed and mom's going to get a new car and we're not going to be in debt and I go to bed that night feeling just so grateful and happy and like we finally got what we've been waiting for and I wake up the next morning with the sunrise as per my new adult routine and I lay in bed for about a half an hour and I can't even see the sun from my window but I just watch the sky change colors and I'm just smiling to myself in bed and then Finally, around 6 o'clock, I get out and I roll out my yoga mat and I step on and before I can even go into my first posture, my phone rings and I see that it's my brother. And I almost don't answer, but at the last minute I decide to because somewhere in the back of my brain I know. And after my dad had called me and my mom at BJ's that day, he called his dealer because he just got a big ass check and he has to go to rehab now and he wants to have one last hurrah before he goes. It'll be four years this September. And I think about my dad every single day. And I think about that check and I think about my mom's reaction and how that check was, Our saving grace and everything everything got put off until we got the check fixing the house got put off buying a new car got put off getting healthy got put off everything got put off until my dad got this magical gift for that was gonna drop out of the sky and save everything and I think about my mom's reaction and how that magical gift that we were all expecting for six months instead of going towards what it was supposed to go towards it had to pay for my dad's funeral And I had to pay to get us out of debt. And it really didn't do anything but cause my mom more stress. And I understand why she was so mad at him. Because what the fuck? You just got this thing that you've been waiting for. And you're going to go and sabotage it. But then I think about my dad. And how he doesn't know how to deal with his feelings. Because he shut them off when he was 16. And he's been numb since he was 16. And I think about that smile on his face when he died. And I remember that my dad had been dancing with the devil before my parents even met each other. And he had been fighting demons that I didn't even know existed. And I realized that that smile on his face was the first time that he was happy and relaxed, and I don't know how long. And I know that because my dad looked more alive when he was dead than he had when I looked him in the eyes four days before he died. And I think about that, and I think about how many things in my own life that I put off until I thought I was ready, and how many times I said, I'll do this when I have this much money, and I'll do this when I have a boyfriend, and I'll do this when I have this job. I remember how many times I've waited for a magical solution to just fall out of the sky. But my dad did that, and when he got his solution, he was in a morgue 24 hours later. I don't know where I'm going to be in 24 hours, so I'm going to do what I need to do now. Thank you.
3: Think they're right in
2: Is all for this week's episode, folks. This is DMA's Behind Me Now, their MTV Unplugged set. And we just heard from Rosie May. Don't forget, if you want to learn about storytelling, we teach all kinds of workshops, one-on-one training, and corporate workshops at thestorystudio.org. You can get 15% off some of those in-person workshops if you just use the offer code RISK, and you can get gift certificates at storystudio.org to give the gift of storytelling training to someone else. Also, you can always find information about where RISK is appearing live next at risk-show.com tour. Folks, today's the day. <laughs> Take a RISK.
3: That's the first time we've ever played that song live, so thank you.
0: I made a nail appointment while giving a golden shower.